You probably won't buy it, but true freedom is found in making a decision to become totally enslaved. Turn with our study leader, Dave Wordson, to Romans 16, verses 15 through 25, as we let the Apostle Paul ask us, Whose slave are you? Jim was raised in a home that didn't include Jesus. A lot of you were raised in a home that included Jesus, but Jim wasn't. He was from a broken family, like a lot of people in our culture today. And he really wasn't involved in the family. Like a lot of you, as I look at the audience, I'd see moms and dads with their kids. And you can look back to when you were born and you've been involved in church all your life. But Jim wasn't raised in a family like that. So if you're from the kind of a heritage where you, it didn't include Jesus, didn't include the Bible, didn't include, you know, going to church and having communion and some of the things you, that you're doing today, Jim can be a great encouragement to you. His family didn't know Jesus, didn't include Jesus. But when Jim was 19 years of age, he met a girl named Doris. And she was a lot shorter than him, but she was a knockout, really pretty. Like every 19-year-old, he was attracted to Doris. He found something out really quickly. Like if he wanted to date Doris, if it was Wednesday night or Sunday, there was no chance that he could spend any time at all with Doris unless it was going to church. And so Jim found himself pretty regularly, because of Doris, sitting in a church like you're sitting in today, and it was during some of those meetings, as a pastor teacher opened up the Word of God, that he began to hear this incredible message. And that incredible message was that it wasn't the good people, the people that are religious, the people that are involved in all kinds of religious tradition, the ones that try hard through their own strength. Jim heard this incredible good news, that Christ died for sinners, that Christ hung on the cross of Calvary for people that were his enemies, that hated him. And Jesus had that kind of love for him. And then he heard the incredible news that after Jesus died for our sins, on the third day he arose again. And something happened deep inside of Jim's heart. He opened his heart to receive that incredible good news. He, World War II broke out soon after he came to know Jesus. Like a lot of men that were in the early 30s coming to know Jesus, very soon after he came to know Jesus, he married Doris, because he was going to go away and serve in the Navy, and he protected his new bride. And in a lot of ways, we could say that he protected us by fighting against the totalitarianism that was seeking to sweep the world. When he came back after World War II was finished, about 1945, he started to get his feet in the ground and started getting going in business. Like a lot of the returning veterans, the World War II vets, They came home, they had suffered many things in the war, but they also came back with a great entrepreneurial spirit. So in about 1950, Jim founded Binford Fencing, because that was his name, Jim Binford. So up in Dallas, he realized there's going to be a lot of people building houses, there's going to be a lot of companies that need to put fences around it, and so he founded Binford Fencing. About 10 years after that, he founded another company, and he called that Ferguson Fence Company. And he not only built fences, but he started giving the material that everyone else needed to build the fences that they were building. And so the Lord began to bless this, and he began to prosper. 
I actually got to know Jim much later in that story because Jim and Doris had four daughters. The Lord had a great sense of humor. He took this great burly Texas guy that had the fencing company, and he softens him by instead of giving him four burly Jim-like sons, he gives them four precious daughters. Two of those daughters are very close friends of mine, Terry Wickersham and Ann Rogers that I've known for many years. A lot of you know Sam and Ann, you know uh, Skip and Terry. And that's why this past Tuesday, uh, about 9 o'clock, I had to go all the way around 635, get way up to Garland, and then turn over to Mesquite and go to downtown Mesquite and then keep driving out in the country. Went to this little church called Cross Point, and the service started at 1030. And I was there because Jim Benford was Skip and Terry's father. And he was, a lot of you know, Rebecca, and that's her grandfather, Mike. This is Mike's grandfather and all the extended Rogers and Wickersham family, Jonathan and all them. This is their grandfather. And I knew Jim because he would come to church services like this from time to time, especially if one of his grandkids was going to perform for us up here on the stage, okay? So I got to know Jim and Doris. I also got to know Jim... Because of Mike. Mike Rogers, had, I've known him since he was a young teenager. Mike would tell me about this grandfather, this papa, that he worked with up in Dallas. His papa kept promising him that he was going to give him the fencing company, but he never did. And he was also this, this man, those World War II guys, they believed in work. They believed in pushing, pushing, pushing. So Mike would tell me, I almost had this picture of this man that was a little bit tyrannical, especially around his work. So that's kind of the way I knew Jim. But at 10.30, we started the service, and the service lasted more than three hours. That's a long, long time. In fact, that, that's probably a record for funeral services. You say, well, why did it take so long? Because Jim had 11 grandkids. And the night before when Mary and I went to the viewing, they told us, in fact, some of the grandkids told me, they said, well, I'm getting my talk ready. We've all been given a minute or two minutes And we're all going to talk about Papa. And I'm scratching my head saying, because Mary and I have done this a long time, nobody talks for a minute or two minutes. And so just multiply 11 grandkids times about 10 minutes, and that gets to be a long service. And we not only have 11 grandkids, we have four daughters, and they all need to talk about their father. And then we also have four son-in-laws, because Jim finally did get his son. Something I want to share with you. The family said to me, like, I can't believe how long it was. Rick, one of the son-in-laws that was leading the service, apologized. I'm so sorry for you. How many of you have ever watched a television show for three hours? I'll, I'll give you your potty breaks and your food breaks. How many of you have ever done that? Raise your hand. How many of you have ever gone to a high school football game that lasted more than three hours? How many of you have ever gone to the movies and it was like one of these Ben-Hur kind of deals or the Titanic and it lasts on and on and on and on and on? How many of you have ever watched a movie for over three hours? How many of you have apologized for that? And this is something very, very important. As Americans, we will think nothing of ball games, movies, other entertainment we go to, giving three hours just like that. But to go to a funeral for three hours or to go to a wedding for three hours is just horrible. Why do we as Americans think it's horrible to stop and celebrate someone's life? How many think your life is important? 
okay? Then is it such a horrible thing to just stop our day and celebrate someone's life? I'm just like all of you. I'm thinking through all the important things that I have to do. And that's the way you are. A whole lot of you have all these really important things that you have to do. And one of the things I want to teach you this morning is that it's very possible you're going to miss the really, really important things because you're anxious to get home to watch your favorite TV program or you're anxious to be able to get back to your office where you can get on the Internet and where you can waste another couple hours doing stuff that you don't want your boss to find out. And what's happening is life just disappears while all these really important things are happening, but you don't show up. And one of the things I'm really thankful for is that from 10.30 to 2.30, I was able just to stop my life, and I want to use Jim, the Rogers family and the Wickersham's family's papa, and Ann and Terry's dad, because he's like a lot of you men that are out there. Jim wasn't a Dave Lowry or Dave Wurtson. He didn't go to Dallas Seminary, although as a layman, as an entrepreneurial businessman, he did commit himself to the study of the Word of God, and he got his seminary degree, and he became very knowledgeable, and that's one of the things I want to challenge you men about. What are your grandchildren, if you live that long, and I asked myself this morning, what are my grandkids going to say about me? I also want you to know that Jim had dementia for six years, so he was in a home where he didn't even recognize Terry and Ann for about six years. If that were to happen to you, we took you out of circulation for six whole years. If we had a celebration of your home going to Jesus, is anyone going to show up? And if they do show up, what are they going to say? And that's why I want to see you. See, Jim gives us a slice in time where we can look at a guy that decided to follow Jesus when he was 19. And Jim, though he wasn't raised in this Jesus thing, he was one of these World War II guy, that if he decided to follow Jesus, he meant it. Was he perfect? No. He's a typical Texan. He had some of the rough edges that Texans can have. He probably could be hard at times. But one of the things I learned is that there's three F's that summarize Jim's life. Number one was fishing. Not really number one, but the first, the first F was fishing. And every one of the grandkids, even down to Rebecca, who was at the very tail end, just before Jim succumbed to dementia where he wouldn't know Rebecca, Rebecca was the last marathon grandchild, number 11, that came in to share about her papa. And Jim took Rebecca fishing only about one time. But she remembers that one time because this papa did a whole lot more than just fish. He not only talked to them how to make sure they didn't get hooked and get, you know, get really hit by a catfish and get blood all over them, although Jim often would not practice what he preached, so they told all these funny stories about him telling them what they should do with a catfish, and he'd be sitting there with a bloody hand, you know, with it being you know, hit right in the palm and bleeding all over the place. They had all kinds of stories, but every one of them also told about Jim's commitment to his family. That was the other F, fishing, family. And that was very evident in the homegoing celebration. But the third thing, which is what I want to talk today, because it's what Romans is talking about, is Jim's third F was faith. Faith in Jesus. As a 19-year-old, he decided that he was going to trust the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it was by grace. And he was going to let Jesus be the master of his life. 
He was going to get to know God's word. And he made the kind of decision, and because his life is over now and he's home with Jesus, we get a chance to think through what's going to be the legacy of that life. And I got to witness that because there was three generations. I know Terry and Ann, and I know all of the son-in-laws. The grandkids are now, a lot of them grew up in our church, so I've known them, a lot of them since they were just little babies. And now I have like Mike and Andrew's kids, for example, hugging on their daughters, meeting me at Walmart and grabbing a hold of my legs and saying, hello, Pastor Dave. And so I have the third generation that started out with this Jim Benford decision who was 19. And that's what I want you to think about, about the decisions that are made. And Jim decided that he was going to listen to what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans. And we're going to look at the book of Romans chapter 6 and the concluding part of that chapter where Paul raises the issues about becoming a slave. It's a really hard thing. If you look at verse 12, we'll pick up what we were closing with last time we were together. It says, do not let sin rule in your mortal or your body that you're living in right now. That's your physical life right now. So that you will obey its lust, its passions. The Bible's saying that every single one of us in this room, even after we come to know Jesus, have these destructive passions. In fact, Time Magazine did a whole article on how we get addicted. And there's a whole article here on how many of us get, are alcoholics. And uh, it says here they have a whole chart on it. It says that 18.7 million people are alcoholics. Only 2 million of them go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And of the 2 million that go to Alcoholics Anonymous, only 20% of them get well. And that's the best treatment program there is out there. It says drugs. There are, you think of like 18.7 million alcoholics. There are 3.7 million people that are dependent upon drugs. The leading drugs are marijuana, cocaine, and pain relievers. And 8,000 people every single day try drugs for the first time. Tobacco. There's 71.5 million people that still smoke cigarettes. And the group from 18 to 25... 44.3% of those 18 to 25 are smoking, even after all this stuff that we've told about these things destroy us. And we could go on. We don't want to get too convicting. Caffeine, there's 80 to 90% of Americans drink a ton of coffee. I'm one of those. Food, 4 million United States adults are addicted and fall into depression because of eating. Gambling, only there's 2 million Americans addicted to gambling. Shopping, oh, that's really get convicting. One in 20 Americans is a compulsive shopper. There are 16 million sexual addicts. And the internet even can become an addictive behavior. Time magazine raises the issue that this doesn't make any sense because evolution teaches us that after millions upon millions upon millions of years where it's a survival of the fittest, what natural selection does is it ferrets out all the weaknesses. It ferrets out only the strong survive. So what's interesting is Time Magazine says that, you know, we're a species that's programmed to ferret out things that don't produce health and vitality and strength. They said, we don't understand why that's so, but we're working on it because you're this strange animal that does and becomes powerfully addicted to self-destructive things. Well, you can follow that metaphor or that picture that you're just an animal, you're just a bag of chemicals, and what this article is about is how we can give you medicine. Neurologists are working now. They found out, for example, if you have a stroke and it knocks out a certain part of your brain, guess what? You never want to smoke anymore. 
before you jump on that and say, well, let's all just zap that part of our brain, you also won't want to do anything else. Because when we, you have a stroke, you don't want to have sex. You don't want to eat very much. You want to sit home. You're kind of a zombie. And I, you laugh about that, but I want you to say, this article, this is a very serious article. And the hope that it gives us is that neurologists, and I want you to know that, that Paul just told us that we're in a mortal body. So your body does react to chemicals. It is true. If you have alcoholism in your body, then your neurological pathways in your brain are pre-programmed to be very susceptible to alcohol. But what you need to go on and to say is that if you could take a chemical, that you could ingest it, and it would make you not have that passion, that that would solve the problem. And what I want you to understand is that we'll develop a chemical that will make ethanol not have any hold over you, but we'll just kick it around the circle. There will be something else that's destructive that will get a hold of you. And one of the worst things that might happen to you is that you might get totally unaddicted from alcohol like some of my friends, and you'll become very arrogant that you've been delivered from alcohol because you go to an AA meeting every single day, but you still don't know the power of Jesus in your everyday life. And you're even very powerfully involved in that movement, but you don't know that it's a gift. You don't know that it's grace. And so you might miss eternity, and you might be totally sober as you live your entire life, but you'll have other areas of your life that are totally out of control that you might not even be aware of, that I wouldn't be aware of in my own life except for the light of Jesus. Does that make sense? What the Apostle Paul has promised is that, is that he's got another way And he's not saying that we're not physical people. It's not saying that there aren't some uh, conditions that we have as human beings that we need to take medication for. But I want to give you a much better hope for your passions that we label in modern culture as addictions. There's a much better way to stop having illicit sex. There's a lot better way to not have to smoke cocaine or take cocaine or sniff it or smoke marijuana. There's a lot better way not to get hooked on shopping or whatever it might be, and that is to trust to the mastery of the lordship of Jesus. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says, don't, let, don't present the parts of your body, in verse 13, to unrighteousness and to sin. But instead, I want you to, con- I want you to present your body, I want you to present your, every part of your body to God. Like those that have been raised from the dead, that you're alive from the, be- from the dead. And in this new life, in verse 13, that Paul is saying, I want you to present the parts of your body to righteousness to God. Now, when I was a teenager and I heard the word righteousness, that's kind of one of those bummer words. Who in the world would ever want to be righteous? And I, I, I think of like of a, of a monk in a long brown robe. And I think of someone that has a halo over their head. And it's not really an attractive word to me, to be cunning, to be clever. You know, I really want to be that as a young person. But to be righteous, wow, who wants to do that? I want you to understand that the word righteous for Paul means to be like the ultimate source of truth, the ultimate source of goodness, the ultimate source of beauty. Righteousness is one of the characteristics of the heart of God. God is righteous. And what it means to be right is that you're lined up with the way that the creator made things to be. That's what all the wisdom literature is about, that, that God's standards, God's principles, when he tells us this is the right thing, what Proverbs is teaching is, is that it lines up with life. It lines up with creation, and it's really a good thing. 
So one of the things I want to pray that every one of our children will develop is a passion for doing what's right. Because doing what's right is not what takes you away from life. It's what gives you life. Doing what's right doesn't destroy you. It doesn't put you in bondage. And that's one of the great lies. Some of you have been raised in religious traditions where your whole experience in a meeting like this was a negative. It was an attack. It made you feel guilty. It wasn't a celebration of freedom. And that's one of the things that grieves my heart the most because some of you have decided that, that God isn't the source of freedom. And what I want to get across to you this morning in the book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's whole point of this passage is that, is that in the book of Romans, we are set free. Look what the Apostle Paul says. If you look at chapter 6 in verse 13, what, verse 15, what then shall we say? Should we sin because we're not under law, but we are under grace? And the idea is, well, I've been saved. I'm not under the law anymore. I'm under God's gracious provision of forgiveness. Doesn't that mean that I can just go ahead and sin? And Paul's response to that is absolutely not. By no means. Don't you know? And then he goes on and tells us why. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone who obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? And this is the basic point in life. I want every one of you to realize this morning as you sit there, every one of you are a slave to someone. And every one of your friends at school, for example, a girl that goes into middle school and a guy that goes into middle school and starts playing football and age grade play football, you get exposed to some of the high school kids and the high school quarterback and, you know, some of the other football players. I'm not speaking about any individual. I'm not, I don't even know the high school quarterback in Melothian. But a lot of the guys that I played ball with in middle school, as you began to come into your own, you kind of grow into adulthood, it becomes a macho thing to act out sexually, that you just have relationships with all the cheerleaders you can have relationship with. And you'll be told that's really being free. And what I would just challenge you to think about, is that really being free? Like, guys, is that really want what you want for yourself? And ladies, is that really what you want for yourself? Because one of the words the Apostle Paul talked about is uncleanness sexually, that we've been set free from that. And, and sex is just one of those areas that our society really believes this is a free society. And what it means is that individually, we're going to give you pills. We'll make sure you don't have babies. We'll also, like when my kids went to UT, they said, we've got a commissary here, and so you can take antibiotics. The only problem is that as a pastor teacher over all these years that I deal with people that did that in college and now they have herpes and now they have weird forms of hepatitis because they were free. They went to parties and, and, and some of the older ones that I'm working with, it didn't hit in middle school. It hit more when they went away to college. But one of the things I want you to realize is that one of the big things that you decide is how do I express my freedom? And you in the society when you leave here is going to tell you, you'll really be free if you just do whatever you want to sexually. You do whatever you want to do with alcohol. You do whatever you want to do in your choice of decisions in life. And the Apostle Paul is saying that's a lie. As a human being, your only choice is to be a slave. And that's a hard thing. In the world that Paul talked to, more than a third of the people were slaves. Like when he wrote to the church of Corinth, I just read to that while we were taking communion, a third of the Corinthians that lived in Corinth were slaves. 
Another 20% used to be slaves, but now they bought their freedom. So when I mentioned slavery, it wasn't like talking to a bunch of Americans that, that, that are free, are individual. What it meant was it, slavery was a very negative thing, and all the Greeks especially dreamed of being free. So when the Apostle Paul spoke in the book of Romans that you're not going to get free, that every one of you are going to be slaves because the human condition is you're either a slave to sin, and this is the point of this passage. Every one of you today, you're either the slave to your sin and your passions that take you away from obedience to Christ, and the result will be death. Or you're a slave to obeying God's standards through the power of the resurrection Christ, and that's going to keep growing in your life And eventually, it's going to produce life. That's Paul's point in this passage. His point is about slavery. That's his title, slavery. And he says, you're going to either be a slave of evil, and it will destroy your life, or you're going to become a slave to Jesus, and he's going to set you free. And you're going to have to make the choice by faith what you believe on. And that's the point that Paul's going to be developing. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves, when you offer the parts of your body to someone who obey him, you're the slave to them. You're a slave to the one you obey. Whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And for Paul, obedience isn't a bad word. If you want to grow in Christ, you begin by obeying the gospel. And something that some of you have been raised with that you just believe the words of the gospel, I want you to understand that Paul doesn't believe that you just make a mental ascent. Yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross. Yes, I know that he rose again from the dead. In this passage, it's very clear throughout the book of Romans, is that you have a decision that comes deep within your heart. So if you're a young person, for example, that have been raised with this, and you've known all your life that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, but it doesn't mean anything to you today. Or if you're an an adult, that you were raised saying, oh, yeah, I believed in Jesus. I made the decision that Jim Benford made. But it doesn't do anything in you. It doesn't really change me. It doesn't really have anything to do with my everyday living. The Apostle Paul is not going to comfort you too much because that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the most powerful, life-transforming person coming to live in your life. And it moves you in your daily life, and you're challenged about who you're going to obey. That's what the Apostle Paul's talking about. He says, you used to be a slave to your sin, but then there was a decision in life. Look what he says in verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be the slave to sin, you wholeheartedly, from the heart, the word there, deep within your heart, you obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Let me talk to you about that. He says, you wholeheartedly, What this business of believing the gospel involves is that from deep in your heart, the core of your being, from your heart, out of your heart, God respects every one of you individually. And this business of deciding I'm going to depend upon Jesus, it means that you hear the gospel. Jesus took the penalty for you. Jesus loved you enough that when you were his enemy, that he gave his life so that you could be forgiven To obey that teaching from the heart means you get it. You realize that when I drink too much, that's what put Jesus on the cross. When I'm angry with my spouse and I don't respect him and I don't love her, when I disobey the command of Jesus, that's what put Jesus on the cross and it bothers me 
because I've fervently chosen to be committed to the one that died for things like that. When I'm watching a movie, for example, that is just celebrating immorality and telling everybody that this is a good thing, this is what will bring you life, and that everybody should do this. If you fervently trust in Jesus from the heart, that bothers you. That gets to you. It makes you feel hurt. You you are hurt that people are enslaved by that. If none of that is happening in your life, then you need to go back to the cross, Paul would tell you. You need to think about what you've really done in your heart with Jesus. That's very important to, to, because Jesus, when he, you really fervently obey the teaching. And notice in the verse, he says the form of teaching, the pattern of teaching. In our day, you live in a culture, you're going to leave here, people feel pattern of teaching doesn't make any difference. And the basic idea is who cares what you believe? It's that you're sincere in believing it. The Apostle Paul is saying no. What the Apostle Paul is saying to the Romans is that throughout the first century world, there was a form of teaching. There was a body of truth. And Paul's been laying out for you in the book of Romans the essence of that truth. We're all sinners. That's Romans 1 through 3. Jesus Christ is God's only sacrifice for sin, his only payment for sin. Jesus Christ died, but he also rose again. And his resurrection life is the only power for change. That's what the early church across the Mediterranean world, everywhere the gospel went, that's the form of teaching. You had idolatrous, immoral Corinthians that slept with whores almost every single night. They heard Jesus died to forgive them for that, and they stopped worshiping idols. They struggled with it, yes, but something happened in their life, and we're here today as part of the, the Christ-following community because there were those that fervently believed that form of teaching. What I'm teaching you this morning is really important. If you leave our area, you go to another city, I want you to be very concerned about the form of teaching. I want you to know, do you need to pick up this book? Are you being challenged to understand it? Because the world out there is telling you there's no form of teaching. Everybody can do what they want to do. And what I want to share with you is that's a lie. And when you're Jim Bent Pinford at the end of your life, if you choose the wrong form of teaching, your legacy is going to be totally different. The Apostle Paul develops this idea of slavery as he, as he pushes home his point in verse 19. Let me put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Paul's fair with us. Sometimes we have a hard time understanding. He says, just as you were slaves to impurity, and that specifically sexual impurity, and sexual dirtiness, and not being obedient to God's sinners in that area, and to ever-increasing wickedness. That broadens it out. The word there is like lawlessness. So now offer yourselves a slavery to God's standards, to his righteousness, which leads to being set apart for him. The word holiness is a great word. It means that you become exclusively devoted to God, who's the ultimate person to be devoted to. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And think hard about this. What benefit, what benefit do you reap? And some of you might have to say, what benefit do my friends reap? Because you were a little child when you received Jesus. So you can watch what your unbelieving friends reap from what they do. And it talked about the things you're ashamed of. Those things result in death. One of the things that I encourage some of you older folks, how many of you received Christ after you were 19? You, you, had, you lived a long time. How many of you received Christ after you were 19? 
so you can think through. How many of you in this audience, even if you received Christ when you were little, have experienced some of the really bad effects of sin? Share that. That's one of the things you should do in the body of Christ. Share the reality. Like as you think of kids going away to college, some of you that went away to college and you totally turned away from Christ, talk to our seniors getting ready to go away to college. And you take them over to Busy Beats, take them down to Starbucks and say, I want to just share with you, I went away, this is what happened, and I screwed up really badly, and then Jesus got a hold of me, and I want you not to make the same destructive mistakes. That makes sense? That's what a body of Christ should be. The Apostle Paul is telling the Romans, because a lot of them didn't hear about Jesus, because this Jesus message is just beginning to be proclaimed. And so some of them were already idolatrous, had lived a lot of sinful things. A lot of them were Gentiles that didn't even know they could get in on the God thing. And now they've come to Jesus, and the Apostle Paul can remind them, remember what you used to do before you came to know Christ. Now you've been set free. You used to be ashamed of those things because they produced so much pain in your life, but now you've been set free. And then he challenges us to the opposite. He says, what benefit did you receive from all those things when you were, that you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. And now we have that verse that maybe you haven't thought of in context. For the pay for sin, the wages of your sin, what you're going to get dealt with because you work the results of sin is death. And by the way, in this verse, it means eternal death. Those that live under the reign of sin, those that live outside of Christ, those that follow that life, it's going to ultimately result in being away from the author of life. And so the pay for sin is going to be death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me just close with this. Mike Rogers was sharing with Mary at the viewing on uh, Monday night. And said, so, you know, Mary, as a, as when I was about 19, and I remember this well because we were praying with Sam and Ann about Mike. Mike was out rodeoing. He wasn't really living for Jesus. Uh, Mike and Ann were kind of raised in more of a legalistic, I mean, Sam was, and, and then Skip Wickersham and some of the others were raised with a legalistic church idea. And Mike, and the idea was that the good people that obey all the clothes laws and the food laws and they get baptized just right, you know what I'm talking about, and they don't use instruments on Sunday morning, all those heathen things, then they're going to go to heaven. And Mike had decided, because he wasn't, Mike was drinking too much, and he was rodeoing and doing a lot of things with guys. His mouth wasn't exactly where it needed to be, and he wasn't obeying his mom and dad, I know that because they were talking to me about it, and we're all in this together praying for dear Mike. Mike, one day working with Papa, said, Papa, there's one of my friends. You know what he did last night? He went out and got drunk, and he was drunk as a skunk, and he's so stupid. I can't believe he drinks like that, and he'll never go to heaven. And Mike's Papa looked at him and said, Mike, how do you know that? And Mike said, because he'll never be good enough. He's such a big hypocrite. He's such a big drunk, and he's dumb. What Mike wasn't telling to his grandfather is Mike had decided I'm not going to go to heaven either because I know I'm not obeying my conscience. And one of the ways that I justify myself is I've decided, well, I'm not going to make it anyway, so I can just keep rebelling against my parents and do what I, what I shouldn't do. And Mike's papa looked at him and said, Mike, Nobody gets to heaven 
grandson, I want you to remember that nobody gets to heaven because they're good enough. How do you know what Jesus might do in your friend's life? And the blood of Jesus is strong enough to make your drunken friend a child of God. And Mike told Mary on Monday night, that's when grace clicked in Mike's life. That's the legacy that Jim Benford had. What one grandchild after another shared is my papa helped me understand that it's a free gift, that it's a relationship with Jesus. And then he was a papa that showed, I'm a normal Texas businessman. I'm a person that has wrestled with the ups and downs out in the business world. But I also made a commitment to get to know the Word of God so well that I even did a seminary degree so that I could, as a layman, really know God's Word. Every one of those grandkids said that at holidays, Papa loved to sing. They all sung of grace. And so that's one reason that service took so long is we had to sing all of Jim's favorite hymns. But all those grandkids also said, the time fishing with Papa were times where I learned about, for by grace are you saved. It's important to become fully devoted to Jesus to live out that faith. To close it, I want to ask you, what are your grandkids going to say? If you're a young person, what are my mom and dad going to say if something happens and I get called in eternity? One of the most important things you can ask yourself as a human being is what's my legacy? In Texas, the most important question you can ask yourself is what are people going to talk about when they eat Texas barbecue and potato salad? You say, Dave, what are you talking about? Every one of you, if we wait long enough, are going to die. And we're going to have a service for you. And then we're going to go into the fellowship hall. We're going to have Texas barbecue. And we're going to eat potato salad. And we're going to tell stories. And the stories we tell is going to be your legacy. Jim left incredible legacies because he chose to really believe the book of Romans. And this morning, what I want to challenge every one of you to do it's have you really decided to follow Jesus? And are you going to be mastered this week? Paul in this context says be continually mastered. Continually present your bodies to your master Jesus so you won't be controlled by the master sin.